0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. An economics textbook that a student might buy today is not so different from books written a quarter century ago. That is a problem. The field has moved on and students have concerns the books don't tackle. We look into the effort to rewrite them. And in the 1980s, two British Pakistani teenagers threw together an album that didn't get very far. A few years ago, a copy unearthed in New York so captivated the DJ who found it that she's now re-releasing it. We take a listen to see what the fuss is about. But first, Today, American warships will take part in exercises in the Indian Ocean as part of the so-called Quad, a loose coalition with Australian, Indian, and Japanese forces widely viewed as a counter to China. Yesterday, Japan's Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide said that peace in Taiwan is key to wider stability in Asia, a key subject for Mr. Suga's visit next week to the White House. Diplomatic, economic, and even hints of military tensions have been rising between China and America and its allies. Last month, internationally coordinated sanctions on Chinese officials, based on the mistreatment of the Muslim Uyghur minority in the province of Xinjiang, were swiftly met with Chinese sanctions on American officials. Nowhere were those troubled China-U.S. relations more apparent than at a hostile meeting of the two sides last month in Alaska.
1: Well, I think we thought too well of the United States. We thought that the U.S. side will follow the necessary diplomatic protocols.
0: Some had hoped that the two countries' relationship would become less confrontational than it had become during Donald Trump's presidency. Instead, it seems only to be deteriorating.
2: I'd say that the U.S. and China have gotten off to a pretty rough start under the Biden administration.
0: Gotti Epstein is our China affairs editor.
2: In their public remarks, everyone from Joe Biden himself on down, I've tried to make clear that there's not going to be a new page turned in U.S.-China relations. They have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch. We saw that play out last month in Alaska in the first high-level face-to-face talks between the U.S. and China. Secretary of State Antony Blinken opened the meeting with China's top diplomat uh, Yang Jiechi by referring to concerns over a number of China's domestic and foreign actions. Including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion
3: toward our allies.
2: And Mr. Yang gave a forceful response.
3: Basically,
2: told the U.S., who are they, to lecture China.
0: And how have things gone since the, the trading of barbs at that meeting?
2: I would say that uh, tensions have continued to build a pace. There's been increasing concern over Taiwan, more incursions by the Chinese military into Taiwanese airspace and waters. You've had senior U.S. military officials express in, in sort of increasingly alarmist terms predictions about China's intentions to invade Taiwan and that it might happen sooner than anybody is expecting in a matter of a few years. You've had uh, an escalating sanctions regime on both sides. It's all left the relationship at its lowest point in decades.
0: It's a relationship that's been fraught since the beginning. After Mao Zedong swept to power in the communist revolution of 1949, the two sides didn't speak. But by the 1970s, both countries wanted to cool tensions. How it happened is one of the most remarkable events in diplomatic history, starting with an unassuming meeting that took place 50 years ago today.
3: On April the 5th, 1971, you have this extraordinary moment in Nagoya, Japan, during the World Table Tennis Championships.
0: Nicholas Griffin is the author of Ping Pong Diplomacy, the secret history of the game that changed the world.
3: An American practice player, a guy called Glenn Cowan, who's sort of an American hippie, he's a teenager. He comes out of the practice hall. The shuttle bus isn't there, but there's another bus there. And there are men on that bus waving him on board. He gets on board and then he realizes, to his shock, that he's on board the Chinese national team bus. So when Cowan enters this bus, the person who approaches him and talks to him is this man called Chuang se dung He's sort of the Pele of ping pong. And they start having this sort of awkward conversation. Chuang Se-Tung offers a gift to Glenn Cowan, and it was a silk screen of some mountains in the middle of China. Now, when that bus pulls up, somehow the press have been alerted and pictures are taken just as Chuang Se-Tung hands this gift. And then Glenn Cowan rushes off and finds a couple of T-shirts, one for him and one for Chuang Se-Tung, and they're the Beatles T-shirts that say, let it be on them. He arranges a meeting with him the next day to hand it over. Once again, there are photographers there, and sure enough, both of these pictures whirl around the world immediately and are on the front cover of every newspaper.
0: This supposedly chance meeting, probably engineered by the Chinese, offered a sudden opportunity for the two countries to connect again. Chinese officials invited the entire American table tennis team into the country, the first delegation of its kind to visit for 20 years. So called ping pong diplomacy humanized the two nations to each other and paved the way for Richard Nixon to visit China the following year. For President Nixon, a sudden change in schedule, a surprise meeting with Mao Zedong, an honor last bestowed during the first day of a state visit on former Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Gotti, how has the relationship between the countries fared since that time in the 70s?
2: Well, I, I see the way to think about ping-pong diplomacy and U.S.-China relations is that its strength turned out to be its weakness. It built an apparatus of interaction between these two rivals built on something that was literally a distraction. We all focused on ping-pong and then the spectacle of Nixon and China. But what was really happening, the reason why the U.S. and China were able to build a relationship was that they were unified by their shared antipathy to the Soviet Union. And that's the thing that actually brought them together. And that was only deepened by the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which coincided with China's economic opening to the West under Deng Xiaoping at the end of the 1970s. So the 80s were, were really the high tide in that relationship.
0: When did the tide begin to turn?
2: I would say 1989 was oh. a crucial point. That marks the end of the Cold War and the ensuing collapse of the Soviet Union combined with, of course, the massacre at Tiananmen Square in June 1989. That was really the beginning of the process where we are now. We've still had increased engagement, with America granting most favored nation status, China's accession to the WTO. But underneath all that, there was still a fundamental ideological conflict at work. Other events that were as important to China during that time were the color revolutions, then the Arab Spring in, a decade ago, These were events that reinforced for China the view that, like with the Soviet Union, the West, and especially the U.S., was looking to end one-party rule in China. You know, honestly, on the U.S. side, the U.S. was hoping for
0: a Gorbachev. And that was a fantasy. And so what are the lessons to, to take from that shifting relationship over those five decades?
2: The hopes that China would change have turned into disillusionment. So we can debate to what degree... Xi Jinping's actions contribute, to what degree Trump's actions contributed, but the tectonic forces at play were that the Cold War provided the opportunity for the U.S. and China to begin to build a relationship that could paper over that underlying schism, and that fundamental schism never went away. The U.S. has come to appreciate that in the Communist Party's own political language, the U.S. poses a basic threat to their way of life. And that's quite a belated realization, I think, on the U.S. part, because much of their political framing of the West has been unchanged over the long run and was even intensifying in the 2000s, long before Xi Jinping.
0: And so do you see this current deterioration in, in relations as part of tactics, as part of a game plan? Do you, do you think this could bring the world back to, to Cold War-era levels of, of tension?
2: Yeah, well, now the U.S. is presented with a China that is much bigger, stronger, and more confidently asserting itself in the world than 50 years ago. Yet every bit as ideologically adversarial as they were then, if not in some ways more so, because the stakes for a one-party system are existential. That is the story they tell themselves, and it is the narrative the U.S. has come to understand, and in turn to frame as an existential threat to democracy in the West. Joe Biden said the other day that the world is at a threshold facing the choice between democracy and autocracy, that framing in both countries shapes the relationship and undergirds everything from tensions in the Taiwan Strait to tit-for-tat sanctions to Chinese boycotts of American companies over Xinjiang cotton and calls for boycotts of the 2022 Olympics in Beijing. It's the belief systems and the actions taken to reflect them that were the story behind the public display in Alaska. And it will continue to be, I think, the real story of the U.S.-China relationship.
0: Gotti, thanks very much for joining us
2: great to be with you jason
0: the economist has been reporting on international relations since before ping pong was even invented get a lot more analysis and perspective like this by taking out a subscription find a special introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer the link is in the show notes
4: selling a little or a lot Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.
5: Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: Anyone? Anyone say? In 1986, this Ben Stein played the role of unnamed economics teacher in the cult classic film Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
5: Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point.
0: Unfortunately for many economics students before and since, his character bears a tediously striking resemblance to real world economics classes. But now there's a concerted effort underway to shake things up.
1: It is surprising how little economics teaching methods have changed over the past quarter century.
0: Sumeya Keynes is The Economist's trade and globalization editor.
1: There was a recent survey of American economics instructors, and it found that these chalk and talk methods, so that's lecturing and using the textbooks, had changed remarkably little over the past 25 years. Recently, there has been a fear that, in general, the methods that economists are using to teach and also the content is out of touch and therefore turning people away from the profession.
0: So why has it gone from general grumbles about how it's done to to the quite pointed ones you describe?
1: I think one reason is this surge in interest in the lack of diversity in the profession. Economists had their Me Too moment, but also in the context of the wider discussion that, that American society has been having about race and problems of racism. So there's this moment where people are really worried about the assumptions that they're making and then they kind of look at embedded or hidden practices that may be putting people off.
0: What do you mean by that, embedded or, or hidden
1: There was one survey of students that found that they thought that inequality was the most pressing economic problem of the age. But often that topic, if you look at textbooks, it's normally included as an appendage, right? It's chapter 13, as a special chapter on inequality. It's not introduced right from the start and kind of made core. There was another study that looked at bias within textbooks. So that found that many underrepresented women in the examples and also the economists that it was citing.
0: So is all of that grumbling being turned into a push for change here?
1: You do see efforts at the the central level. So there's the American Economic Association which has really upped its game in terms of trying to help out with this. So there's a website where they share best practices. So they encourage professors to include more student participation, to be open to biases in textbooks. It encourages them to replace trivial or sexist examples like beer and sports cars with applications like inequality and climate change. And there are some efforts within textbooks. So... Actually, notably in Britain, there is this endeavor called Core, which is this charity run by Wendy Carlin. And there, there is this free textbook, which is a textbook and and a curriculum. The key thing about that is that it starts with inequality. It's not an afterthought. And it seems to really have created this revolution in British economics teaching. That's been adopted in 47 out of 60 economics teaching universities. That book hasn't seen similar success in the US.
0: So why do you think it is that the, the the more progressive textbook that's taken hold in Britain hasn't done so in America?
1: Well if you speak to people in America, including people who've tried to teach this thing, they say that one of the things that the core curriculum tries to do is de-emphasize the simple supply and demand diagrams that are used in traditional textbooks. They say that they they're not applicable to various situations. And the complaint is that the things that they use instead are too mathematically demanding. And then another criticism is that the core curriculum was seen as left-wing, it was seen as politically biased. I think there's also a bit of economics here, right? It's also about this market and the fact that there are costs to switching between different books You might think that a free textbook would be very attractive to students who are otherwise having to fork out hundreds of dollars for these things. But in this case, it's teachers, it's not students who who pick the textbook. And the teachers might not want to switch because they'd have to change up their notes, they'd have to change up their practices.
0: So if the profession can get past the, the naughty economics of redistributing the curriculum, do you think it'll make the difference that people seem to want?
1: I think the evidence is mixed. And partly that's because there isn't that much evidence. There was one study that looked at changes in both content and teaching methods at Hamilton College. And that found that the students were doing things like practical assignments. They had a curricula covering the broad range of social issues that economists study. That found that women got better results after taking that course, but it didn't actually find that women and minorities were more likely to take up economics later. They actually found that everyone was more likely to take up economics later. So I suppose that's a slight disappointment for people hoping that this will diversify the profession, but it's good news for the people who want to attract more people to economics. If more people are taking economics as a result of these changes, then that's that's not a bad outcome.
0: Sumeya, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
5: First, this just throbbing drum machine beat comes in. A moment later, there's a new wave synthesizer. It's vaguely reminiscent of something you've heard in the
0: 1980s, but not quite. It's really not like anything you've heard before. They gypsy,
1: they come. John
0: Dugan writes about music for The Economist, including most recently on the rediscovered 1985 album Disco Sayage. Disco Sayage
5: means beyond disco in Urdu. It's a collaboration between two British Pakistani teenagers who recorded the album in the mid-1980s. It mixes analog synthesizers, new drum machines with traditional Bollywood music. It is an utter delight. Faisal Mosley and Nurman Niazi were born in Lahore. Their father was a well-known composer, and their mother was a soundtrack vocalist. They immigrated to the UK when they were very young. Nurman told me when she was young, she didn't find it at all strange that her parents were professional musicians.
4: Being a small child, anything that happens within the house, you just accept it. Listening to them rehearsing downstairs in the living room, musicians would come in and sit down with mum and dad. I thought that was absolutely normal. I thought every household in the world had that kind of life.
5: Their parents were basically making Bollywood soundtrack music traditional music, but modernized for Bollywood films. Faisal was fond of jamming on his father's
2: keyboards at home. I think I made my first TV appearance when I was probably one or two. Ever since then, I was attached to my parents, doing shows, helping my dad be like a little mini helper for his composition sometimes.
5: Uh, his sister joined in singing and soon they found that they were composing songs. Their father noticed and thought, hey, this might be something that a record label might be interested in.
4: My fondest memory is walking in, 12-year-old kid, and seeing my brother sitting there. He's playing on the keyboard. I don't quite know how this happened, but I started humming a tune, and then we both started to just talk to each other about, oh, sing it like that, or do this, or do that. And suddenly, before you know it, we've got a song.
5: When they went in the recording studio, they were 19 and 14. Nermeen is writing and singing from the perspective of a true teenager.
4: Almost overnight, the relationship changed because as a brother and sister who are normally at loggerheads with completely different interests, we suddenly realized that music is something that we did have in common.
5: There's sort of an organic feel to the music. These are not commercial, canned pop hits. There's a naivete to it, certainly, but also the way you can hear the two cultures blending in just such a natural way. It's not a forced concept. It's just kind of something that they've let happen in the studio. One of the things that distinguishes traditional Pakistani music from Western music is the use of the Hindustani musical scale. The use of the Hindustani scale here connects it with traditional music, while the sounds you're hearing, the synthesizers and the drum machines, connect it with the modern 1980s synth pop that we're familiar with.
2: My dad had an old generation Roland drum machine that he had used for recordings in Pakistan for lots and lots of music and on stage as well. And so that was kind of like a precursor to famous uh, drum machines like 808 and the 909 for example, which I used in the recordings.
4: in
5: Nermeen and Faisal recorded this album over the summer. When Nermeen went back to school in the fall, she didn't tell any of her schoolmates about this record. But teachers asked her if she could perform some of the songs for her classmates.
4: I had over 900 girls screaming and clapping to songs they didn't understand. Before I would start a song, I would explain to them what the song was about. And then because I was acting the song out, they were identifying with what I was trying to do, even though they couldn't understand the language. As a middle-aged woman, when I look back now, I think, gosh, we really had so much confidence.
5: In some ways, the record was too modern for the traditional music fans, not trendy enough or sung in English enough. It didn't catch on. This record was lost until about six years ago when the co-founder of Disc of Stan, A Los Angeles DJ collective discovered it while she was record digging on the Lower East Side. She and her cohorts decided that this should be their first reissue on their record label.
4: Some of the biggest critics of the album are My Own Kids. They said that a lot of kids really love the 80s and the 90s sounds. Those fantastic sounds of the synthesizers and the drum machines at that particular time, it's like a photo, it's a moment in time that's been caught forever.
5: I think the modern audience is fascinated by young people making their own music. Synthesizers and drum machines being used to recreate a teenager's world at a moment in time.
0: John Dugan speaking with Nermin Niazi and Faisal Mosle about their rediscovered 1985 album, Disco Say Age. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow.